Hello, Dominic. Hello, Katie. You sound really despairing. <laughs> Not despairing. I'm very happy to be here. And hello, listeners, and welcome back to the Europeans, the continent's favourite podcast. Dominic Kramer in Amsterdam. What's going on with you? Uh, well, Katie Lee in Paris, I am fine. I've been prancing around in pink heels at work, uh, which has been fun. We, we have really different jobs. Sorry to make you jealous. Why are you wearing pink heels at work? We're doing a Cinderella opera and it's very pink and camp and it's fun. Love it. After that one mean reviewer said I was talking about music too much, I'm scared to ever mention my operatic career ever again. You've been so traumatised by that one reviewer. So let's leave it at that. All right, fair enough. What about you? What have you been up to? Any nice new shoes at work? No new shoes at work. I've got literally nothing to tell you. I've just been doing my job. Oh. Sadly. Uh, so I guess we should just get on with the show. Well, here's Good Week, Bad Week, the pretty self-explanatory part of the show where we talk about who's had a good week and who's had a bad week. Good week, bad week. Who's had a good week, Katie? It has been a good week for Ursula von der Leyen, who has finally been able to take office as the new Queen of Europe. Is that the um, official title? <laughs> that's not her job title. Uh, her job title is actually President of the European Commission, one of the most powerful jobs in Europe, and she is the first woman ever to hold it. And it's taken months for her and the rest of the commission to actually take office. There's been quite a lot of drama. What is her actual job going to be? She's basically the head of what you might see as the European Union's government. Can I confess something? You can. I've been finding it quite hard to get my head around what the commission actually does. Don't feel bad about it. I'm pretty sure most people outside the Brussels bubble don't really know what the commission is or does, even though we should, really. Katie, mm. why don't we supersize this good week and go and ask some people who actually are experts from the Brussels bubble. What, like, go to Brussels? Yeah. Okay. See you in Brussels. This is the second episode in our special series, Bursting the Bubble. Our mission is to explain how the EU actually works without boring you to death. This week, we are asking, who is Ursula von der Leyen? What is her job and what is her team at the European Commission actually going to be doing for the next five years? How does it affect our lives? We will be answering all of these questions if we ever make it to Brussels. So, it turns out it's a bit more complicated than just jumping on a train to Brussels and meeting Katie and finding out what's happening and bursting that bubble. I've been standing at Amsterdam Central Station for about an hour now. Katie, I hope you're um, not too bored waiting for me. It's fine, Dominic. I'll just hang around here for half an hour in the cold. Oh, I can see her. Look what the cat dragged in. So rude. So, since we're here to try to work out what the European Commission does, that's where we're headed. The Commission's headquarters, a massive, quite scary-looking building in central Brussels, which is called the Berlaymont. Did I pronounce that right? I call it Berlaymont. Classy. 
At this point, we know shamefully little about what the commission actually does. And we also don't know much about Ursula von der Leyen, the woman who's going to be running it for the next five years. We have to do it the European way. I know that her old job was being Germany's defence minister and that people are seeing this as quite a massive career jump for her. Uh, I know that she's replacing Jean-Claude Juncker as president. He was quite a colourful character. Ursula herself is 61. She's a conservative. She's really good at languages. And she works crazy hard. I don't really know much else about what she wants to do while she's in charge or even what she's in charge of. Which is why we have enlisted an unofficial tour guide to show us around. Good to meet you in person. Good to finally meet you. Tom Moylan, he is an affable Irishman with a very nice beard. And more importantly, he works as a speechwriter at the European Commission. There's a couple of things that we really like about Tom. One is that he's one of the few people on Twitter that manages to be funny about European politics. No mean feat. The other is that he took us on an extremely unofficial tour of the Commission building, which took in some really quite unexpected sights. So this is the ugliest piece of art. My girlfriend actually was trained as an interpreter. One of the abiding memories she has of being an interpreter is the smell in these cabins. Because you essentially have two people in a very enclosed space working very hard under high pressure, which means it's just a sweat box. This is a statue of Jesus. Hey Jesus. In front of some palm trees photographed onto the wall. While we're wandering around the corridors of power, let me give you a quick recap of how European laws actually get made. It's a bit complicated, but it's kind of key to understanding why you should care about Ursula von der Leyen and her commissioners. So bear with me. I'm braced and ready. As you'll remember, Dominic, from the last episode that we did about how Brussels works, Brussels is a triangle. There are... I don't remember that at all. You don't remember that Brussels is a triangle? Did you say Brussels was a triangle in the last episode? Okay, well, I might not have phrased it exactly like that. But what I mean is that there are three different bits of the EU machine that each have a role in making our laws. Can you name them? Uh, I hate it when you do this, but um, yes, I can. The Commission the parliament and the one that we always forget about and don't really understand which is the council see you do know stuff take a bow bowing so super basic explanation the parliament is made up of 751 people who are directly elected by us the voters of europe and then there's the council And that's the thing uh, that is really confusing and is made up of national government ministers but, but, this is the crucial thing, the members change depending on what like policy we're talking about. So if we're talking about a new agriculture policy, it will be the 28 agriculture ministers, one from each country. If it's a defence policy, it's the 28 defence ministers. You get the idea. Do you get the idea? I do, yeah. Although you're quite optimistically still referring to 28. <laughs> that's that's like a whole other thing that I think we can't get to you right now. Um, anyway, so when there's a new law on the table, that bit of legislation, ping-pongs between the parliament and the national ministers, aka the council, getting tweaked and amended until everyone is more or less happy with it. Okay, 
And when does the commission come in then? So that's the key thing for understanding why the commission is so powerful. In most cases, they are the only body out of those three that gets to put forward proposals for new laws. So just to give a couple of examples, getting rid of mobile roaming charges, probably one of the most popular decisions in EU history. That proposal had to officially start within the commission. And the ban on single-use plastics that's coming in next year no more coffee stirrers, Dominic. No more plastic balloon sticks, which I know you're very sad about. I've literally never used a coffee stirrer or a plastic balloon stick. Why do they exist? You're a good person. Um, anyway, those things are going to be banned from next year onwards. But that law and the mobile roaming charges thing and like basically most European laws, those came from proposals that were originally written by the Commission. So once the Parliament and the Council are done tweaking the draft law... The commission is also then in charge of turning it into a reality and enforcing it, right? Mm-hmm. Tom, the speechwriter, compares it a bit to an EU version of the civil service, a bureaucracy that actually manages all this stuff. Yeah. So the commission has a staff of like 32,000 people developing all of these policies and then making sure that all of these things actually get done. So in that way, it is a bit like a giant European civil service. Yeah. And another thing that makes it a bit like politics on a national level is that each of these kind of uh, ministries, each policy area, has a politician in charge of it. So it has ministers, but we don't call them like that. We call them commissioners. That is Sophia Rusak. You might recognise her voice from the last special episode. She's a researcher at the Centre for European Policy Studies, and she's kind of our spirit guide for working out how things in Brussels actually work. Oh, I always wanted a spirit guide. So that is the thing. The EU is not a national state. So therefore, the vocabulary is quite different, which makes it very confusing, actually, for people not being so close, you know, to this bubble to understand what it means. But let's say the commissioners are like ministers. So they're all responsible for one portfolio. So if you're like the agriculture commissioner, mm. your job is to deal with agriculture thinking like as a European, I, I deal with agriculture for the entire of Europe. Exactly. That's the thing. So you, you're not allowed to look at agriculture from a particular angle, but you really have to have the common European good in terms of agriculture in your mind. Yeah. So you know how you said that the proposals for new laws have to come from the commission? Mm-hmm. Do they always come from the commissioner or do they come from like a stooge whispering into their ear? That's uh, quite a sinister way of putting it. Um, I think the answer is they can come from a few places. The idea for this new law, it might come from the commissioner themselves. It might come from someone in their team. But wherever it comes from, all of the commissioners as a whole have to agree with this new proposal for a law or it ain't happening. All decisions are made are made with the consent of everyone. Um, that also means that I'm responsible for environment and you're responsible for uh, transport. Sure. <laughs> then I can also say, your idea, Katie, there's, there's something wrong and we have to... Re- I, or I can even vote against it. What's wrong with my it. idea? Sorry. It was a good idea. Sorry. <laughs> so there might be a bit of squabbling, but eventually the commission will come up with a proposed law that everyone agrees on. Ursula's job is to coordinate all of this. She sets the priorities. She's a bit like the prime minister of this European government, I guess. Yeah, and actually she was supposed to start the job at the beginning of November. But she and the rest of the gang are starting a month late because there's been quite a few, can I say ball aches? Yes, yes, you can. There have been quite a few ball aches along the way. Yeah, so the first major ball ache was Ursula getting the job in the first place. She kind of got here by accident. Cast your mind back to May when we had elections for the European Parliament. Ursula was quietly getting on with her job as the Minister of Defence in Germany. 
there was no reason for her to change jobs. And that's because the job of commission president was supposed to go to one of the people known as the Spitzenkandidaten. 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 Oh, I love that word. I know you do. Go on then, tell us what it means. So basically, each of the different political blocs in the European Parliament, so the Conservatives from all across Europe, the Socialists from all across Europe, and the Liberals, the idea was for each bloc to choose a would-be president of the Commission, a Spitzenkandidat, which means lead candidate in German. And the plan was that if a bloc came top in the elections, their Spitzenkandidat would become president. That sounds like a great plan. It sounds very nice and democratic. I like this idea of having a president who reflects who we elected to some extent. Except that didn't actually happen. Because, Europeans, we have elected a very diverse parliament. Congratulations. There isn't actually one bloc that did amazingly better than the others. So our national leaders took a look at all these Spitzenkandidaten and they just couldn't agree on which one of them should be in charge. Like, all of these people just seemed objectionable to one country or another. Which is how we ended up with Ursula. Can I play a clip of Ursula from The Little Mermaid here? Yes. I think the fact that we ended up with Ursula reflects a pattern in European politics. It is just really hard to get 28 countries to agree with each other. And when you're trying to do that, you often end up with a solution that none of our governments hate, but no one is super happy about either. Yay, Europe is so inspiring. So, flashback to July. Our national leaders have grudgingly nominated Ursula to be president. And she's the first woman ever nominated for the job, which is pretty huge. But that ended up being the easy bit. First, she had to get the European Parliament to agree to her having the job. And they were super pissed off about her getting the job instead of one of the Spitzen candidates. With a wafer thin 383 votes in favour, just nine to spare. One of the and then there was this whole messy business of getting her team together. Because here's the thing. Every country sends a commissioner to Brussels, so you've got to distribute the jobs in a way that all of our governments think is fair. And then the European Parliament can say no if they don't think the candidates are up to scratch, which they actually did this time, not once, but three times. The nominees from Hungary and Romania were turned down over allegations of financial irregularities. Parliament overwhelmingly rejecting France's candidate for the commission, Sylvie Goulard. I actually think it's really good that MEPs get a say over whether these people get the jobs or not. I mean, fine, it's made the whole thing quite slow, but at least the people that we elect get to vet the new commissioners and make sure that they're not, like, super corrupt or anything. And they get to grill them pretty hard to make sure that they actually know about trade or agriculture or whatever it is that they've been put in charge of. So they'll have to have an interview. That's Tom, the speechwriter. And a public interview that lasts hours and is on camera and anyone can look at it. It seems like the most stressful thing in the world. Truly horrifying. It's like my worst nightmare. Maybe you, you won't be the a super expert in the particular area, but you need to show that you're coherent and you have ideas for it and you have a vision, essentially. 
Can we talk about some of the job titles that Ursula has been giving out? Because some of them are a bit weird. Mm-hmm. I think you're talking about one job title in particular. Yeah, there was quite a ruckus back in October when Ursula announced that one of her commissioners, the Greek guy, was going to have the pretty outlandish job title of Commissioner for Protecting the European Way of Life. Which might be fine if the job didn't involve dealing with migration. And the idea that protecting the European way of life involved controlling immigration just came off as really pretty racist and people got really angry about it. It also struck me as kind of zany that anyone would even have that job title. And I'm not the only one that thinks that. Appoint a commissioner who has the title, the commissioner for protecting the European way of life. Have you ever heard of a minister protecting the French way of life or the UK way of life or whatever? It doesn't make sense. That's Oli Reborg. He's a correspondent for Danish National Radio and TV and maybe the jolliest man in Brussels. You'll be hearing from him again a little bit later. Anyway, you will be pleased to hear that the job title ended up getting tweaked to promoting the European way of life. But it's not the only out there job title on the list. Some of them are quite standard, health, agriculture. But some of them are like executive vice president for an economy that works for people. I'm not even sure that that fits on a business card. Yeah, some of them are pretty philosophical, which I think also reflects the fact that loads of complicated jostling goes on to find a job for everyone. And some of the countries are way more powerful than others, so they want loads of clout. Like, the French commissioner's job is huge, commissioner for the internal market, and it's going to involve looking at everything from factories to outer space. France, of course, wants an important portfolio and it's difficult to say no to France. And then at the same time, you have to find jobs for 28 people, which it needs to make sense. And you need to keep 28 countries happy. That's Diego Velasquez. He's another Brussels journalist, this time for the Luxembourg Wurt newspaper. Listening to Diego, it kind of seems like a miracle that we ever managed to actually make this happen. It's taken a while to get here, but we're finally in a position where Ursula can actually start trying to get stuff done. Yes, getting stuff done from her brand new secret bunker slash studio apartment. This brings us to what was the most exciting part of our tour of the European Commission. We got a glimpse of the 25 square metre apartment that Ursula von der Leyen has built next to her office inside the Commission building so that she can work all the time and basically never leave. We weren't actually allowed to record this part of the tour uh, because it's top secret, but it was very exciting. We only got a tiny piece but it looks like she's going to have a really nice view over the city and we got to see, like, her shelves. It really doesn't sound exciting when you put it like that. But in all seriousness, this has actually been quite controversial. The fact that Ursula is going to be living inside the commission. Here's Diego again. If you live within your walls, you reinforce that um, cliché of the European Commission being, yeah, stuck in its own bubble. It was very hard to do it worse than Juncker, and I think she managed, because Juncker used to live in a hotel, which also was not a way of showing you care a lot about the city you live in, in Brussels, you don't mingle too much with normal people, but at least in a hotel, you had to do with the people working at the hotel, which are not from the commission, so... Uh, Let's roll back a sec. 
You only lived in a hotel for five years. I yeah. did not know that. Was I it? did not know that. It's not far away from here. It's next to Parc du Cinquantenaire. Yeah, he did. Is it like a super luxury hotel? No, not at all. It was a best Western hotel, so not luxury at all, actually. <laughs> yeah, it seems like they're quite a weird breed, European Commission presidents. As for Ursula, I mean, personally, I'm not really bothered by the fact that she's built a flat next to her office. I mean, I think if anything, it shows that she wants to dedicate herself 100% to the job. And okay, fine, like maybe that's not a great example to set in terms of work-life balance, but maybe that's what Europe needs. Mm, I'm not surprised coming from you. What are you trying to say? Anyway, let's talk about what she actually wants to do now that she's, after all this, finally managed to start the job. We must take bold steps together. Our current goal of reducing our emissions by 40% by 2030 is not enough. We must go further. So this is the most striking thing about what Ursula says she wants to do, and maybe particularly striking coming from a conservative. She's pushing for what's being called a Green New Deal, and it's pretty radical. She wants really ambitious cuts in our carbon emissions and a massive fund to pay for the transition to green energy. The chance of her actually getting this thing passed is another matter, but it is pretty remarkable that the EU is trying to make the climate the top priority when so many national governments aren't doing that. It's the climate. That's the big difference. Climate's really um, becoming the big thing. That's Isabelle Horry. She's a French radio journalist who has been covering Brussels since forever. So she's going to announce stuff quite quickly, we hear. Then it's migration, because they never managed to agree. And then, of course, it's technology and data protection, all those technologies. These all seem like quite reasonable things that she wants to prioritise. But it's not really clear how much Ursula is going to be able to get done. A big part of the problem, as Isabelle sees it, is that the parliament that we've just elected is a lot more fragmented than the last one. What's tended to happen in the past is that the centre-left and the centre-right have between them held a majority. So they've kind of run the place as a, a grand coalition. So together. Yeah, exactly. They've kind of like agreed between the two of them. But that's not the case anymore. Uh, if they want to get stuff passed, they're going to need to get the Liberals and maybe even the Greens on board. That will make her life very difficult because that means on every piece of legislation she will have to please four different political families. And when you think that in all those political families you already have different nuances, you know, like in the Conservatives you have Victor Orban and you have Christian Democrats from, uh, from Belgium were very, or Luxembourg were very centrist people. It will remain difficult. And that's just in the Parliament. The other thing is that every EU law, as you might remember, Dominic, also has to get approved by our national governments, a.k.a. their council. And the national governments are also pretty divided right now over how to deal with things like migration and the climate. Some people, maybe you included by the sounds of that, are casting Ursula von der Leyen as a failure before she's even started. But Isabel is inclined to give her the benefit of the doubt, for now at least. Because some people have been really hard on her and I think she hasn't even started. So please, we are no judge. Let's wait. You know, let's wait. Let's let's give her a year. Come back in a year and I'll be able to tell you if she's a good president or not. At the end of the day, we wanted to make this episode because we wanted to know whether we, as normal Europeans living 
outside the boss's bubble should give a damn about the fact that there are new people in charge now? And the answer to that is yes, you should. Ursula von der Leyen is going to be in charge of a massive administration that governs 500 million people. It gets to decide what ideas get to be turned into new laws, and it puts those laws into action. This stuff matters. Whether you find that stuff intrinsically exciting is another question. And let's face it, even people who've been in Brussels for like 30 years, like Ole, the Danish TV correspondent, even they find it hard sometimes to get excited about it. Sorry to say, but what happens in Brussels is boring. It is very, very important, but I tell you, it is so, 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 so boring. Why is this machinery and why, what, what happened in Brussels, why is this so important? If you start in the morning and you get up in the morning, you open the fridge and you get something to eat, who has decided which food additives, how much sugar can be in your food, it's in Brussels. You open the tap to get some water. Who has decided what is the quality of your drinking water? It's the European Union. You go out, you, you put on the light and the light bulbs. Who have introduced, you know, uh, energy-saving light bulbs? It's the European Union. You go out and you get your car. I think we sometimes assume that EU politics is boring because we don't know how it works and that is a bit intimidating. And yeah, okay, a bunch of what happens in Brussels is administrative and that is inherently boring. But when you think about what all of that boring, really frustrating admin represents, it's all of these countries that used to fight horrible wars against each other, finding solutions by talking and working it out on paper. In practice, yeah, it looks incredibly boring. But the idea of it is actually really inspiring. Are you getting soppy because it's the end of the show? Uh, I am, yeah. And I'm not articulating it very well. So I'm going to give the last word to Tom because he is literally a speechwriter. So he says it good. I look at the EU institutions and I kind of see an admittedly imperfect giant project, but a project that's incredible, a project that's brought peace and cooperation and has created connections between cultures that have never existed before and it's created uh, uh, systems that have never existed before. When you think about it, the project itself is absolutely mental. Within living memory, we were all just murdering each other all the time. And now we're doing something incredibly complicated and trying to build something together. And the fact that that is working against all the odds, I think it's pretty incredible. This episode was hosted by Dominic Kramer and Katie Lee, who also edited it. Production and editorial help came from Katz Laszlo. We couldn't have made this episode without generous support from the European Cultural Foundation. They support initiatives which promote Europe as an open and democratic space. Thank you also to our wonderful Patreon supporters who keep this podcast running with their generous monthly donations. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week. We never got to bad week.